Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is July 2nd, 2021, and it is our 89th episode. Today we'll be discussing foreign affairs. How are you this morning? I'm doing quite well. Uh, beautiful morning uh, here in Denver, Colorado, and I'm looking forward to this episode talking about China and the Gilded Age. Yes. Um, so we got into a little bit of this discussion yesterday. We're, we choose one article, and we go through it, and we read the whole thing, and we discuss it. And that's sort of our format here. And yet, I did want to point something out that we were discussing yesterday, and that is... This foreign affairs is devoted almost entirely to China. Uh, that's that's the main thrust of this issue of foreign affairs, correct? Correct. Okay, but we pointed out something very interesting. Um, we we like to do a meta analysis on this show, and we like to say where you stand depends on where you sit. Well, Jude Blanchett is talking about the potential pitfalls of Xi's strategy. And that's not the article we're reading today, but Jude Blanchett is a Freeman chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So I believe that's in the U.S. Um, China's economic reckoning is the price of failed reforms. This is very critical of the regime. It's by Daniel H. Rosen, who's a founding partner of the Rhodium Group, who's centered in New York City. So the Robber Barons of Beijing is by Yuan Yuan Ong, well, Yuan Yuan Ong is at the University of Michigan, and her family, or she, is from Singapore. And that's, that's the article we're reading today. So she's not Chinese, but she may be ethnically Chinese, I don't know, but she's from Singapore. And then we get into a positive article called Becoming Strong, the New Chinese Foreign Policy by Yan Shuitong. Well, he is a distinguished professor at Tsinghua University, so he's in China. Now, what we were discussing yesterday is, and of course, this Wang GC, the plot against China, how Beijing sees Washington's consensus. And this is by the president of the Institute of International Strategic Studies at Peking University. So they're in Beijing, in the capital of China, Wang GC. So the pro-China articles are written by people within China. The ones that are more critical of the regime are written by people outside of China. Now. When we take a look at foreign affairs, Americans can write articles critical of the American political regime, and they can write articles in favor of the American political regime. But it seems like in China, it's unlikely you'd find a Chinese scholar writing an article critical of the regime. Correct. So, but, but it's also very interesting, I think it's interesting, uh, to listen to all sides and and hear what their arguments are. I, that's true. And just because they're writing in favor of the regime doesn't mean their arguments are wrong. Correct? They are, Yes, because they are arguments. <laughs> and, and they will have a point. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to agree with it, uh, but understand what they're saying uh, enough to formulate your own or uh, to compare with others. Yes, I guess just my point is you um it's difficult to put them on evil even footing knowing that there's a huge swath of viewpoints that they're not allowed to take whereas in america you're allowed to take several viewpoints 
you're allowed to be critical of the Biden administration. You're allowed to be critical of the Trump administration. You're allowed to write articles detailing every point where the Trump administration failed, where the Biden administration failed, where the Obama administration failed, and publish it in American publications and not have to worry about reprimand or retaliation from the government. In China, I don't believe that's totally true. That's, that's correct. But then I think it's very valuable. What if you had those constraints? In other words, uh, what if you were in a university where your job was on the line, depending on how you represented things mm -hmm. and how you stated things? Uh, and you might have a little bit of a or you're in a political party yes. or your job uh, in industry uh, was dependent on one view or the other. And so, again, we keep saying where you stand based on where you sit. Uh, and I, I think it's valuable that even our podcast, we're, we're going to look at all sides. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't necessarily, uh, well, we may agree, but in this, uh, as we talk about things, we're not going to just say they're wrong and they're right. We're going to say, here's what the arguments are. Yes. Yes. Um, so in these articles that are written by the two Chinese uh, scholars, Yan Shuitong becoming strong from Tsinghua University and the plot against China by Wang Jixi from Peking University, just because they're more pro-China, just because they're taking a viewpoint that is the only viewpoint they're allowed to take, that doesn't mean that their arguments are invalid. I'm sure that there's scholarship, there's research, and there's, there's defense of their points that is very important to look at, especially in the one critical of America. I think that's, it's fascinating how Beijing sees the Washington consensus. We're not doing that article today. But understanding how a principal that's a president of the Institute of International Studies at Peking University, how they view the Washington consensus and Beijing's view of it is important for an American to understand what is the level of hostility that may arise between these two superpowers? What is the level of cooperation that may arise? And you may get more out of reading a, an article like this than you would out of reading a criticism, an outsider's criticism of the Xi Jinping regime. That's correct. And also, also uh, Foreign Affairs published both articles, uh, published all these articles. Mm -hmm. So you have a place where you can actually go and hear their their arguments yes and these uh, people are they're experts in the field you know they're not just firing off at the hip on twitter because they that's one thing <laughs> that gets me these people that are whether they're pundits on either side of the political spectrum here in america they weigh in on everything whether or not they know what the hell they're talking about or not that's true i think a lot of times people will hear anybody talk and they'll understand something and they can be inflamed Mm -hmm. Instead of uh, trying listening to the other person and just understanding what they're saying, mm -hmm. and uh, whether you agree or not, just try to understand what people are saying. Yes, and I, I don't think I don't think uh, in the media, the social media, uh, and also the media, or the people that listen to the media are doing that. Uh, they just get a they just get a soapbox, and they think that's uh, interesting to to carry forward, whether they understand it or not. Yes. Now, I'm going to use a classic tactic of pundits right now to, to take down pundits, and it's, like the, it's using their tactics against them. But I saw a conservative pundit on Twitter 
say, everyone says the vaccines are so great, but when my friend got it, he got some sort of palsy, and that's no good. And I'm thinking, okay, so the vaccine has saved millions of lives, but your friend, you know, he got a palsy. Uh, like un, a rare, like undefined medical condition happened when he got the vaccine and your friend. So that, well, we might as well just stop taking the vaccines. And it's like, so this guy is supposed to be an expert. He's telling people, people are listening to him. And that's the level of, of rigor and scholarship he's applying to his argument. And then just to be fair to both sides, there was a liberal pundit who comments on liberal issues and, you know, thinks that the Republican Party is the most dangerous thing that's ever happened to mankind and that the Democrats are the saviors. And he was on a trip and he posted a picture of uh, middle America, the breadbasket of America. And you know how they have center pivot irrigation and it creates fields that are, you know, cornfields that are circular because there's, you know, a post and the, the irrigator, it goes around in a big circle and irrigates a field. And he says, whoa, what are those things down there? <laughs> so he doesn't even know what a farmland looks like. It's, it's embarrassing, right? Uh -huh. This guy has hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube and, you know, and he he's a, a liberal pundit. He doesn't even know what farmland is. So it's like... If you want to take cheap shots at these people, there's always some sort of piece of content they've created that you can sort of pinpoint in on and say they don't know what they're talking about. Whereas what we're doing today, and we're going to be long today, we're going to be, this is going to be an hour and a half, hour, 45 minute podcast, if that's okay with you. Okay with me. Okay. But what we're doing today is reading an article not written by a pundit. It's written by a scholar. She's the Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan and author of China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. Yuan Yuan Ong is the name of this author. Now, she's written two books on China. I don't have her CV pulled up, but she's devoted her life of scholarship to China's economic rise, sort of explanations for it, how they're going to adapt to the future. And I'm sure that she doesn't comment on everything that happens on Twitter on a day-to-day -day basis because when you're in a position of academia, your goal is not to stoke outrage every day. And I think that a lot of these political pundits that people follow and they look to for perspectives, that is their goal. Whereas a scholar is sort of trying to drill down on exactly what's happening and sort of understand and explain it uh, genuinely, not disingenuously. Well, the other thing about scholars and professors at universities, especially in the United States, is that when you publish anything, you're going to be reviewed, you're going to be criticized, you're going to be analyzed, you're going to be questioned, uh, and all your facts are going to be checked, uh, your references are going to be checked, and also your arguments are going to be challenged. Uh, you can have an argument, but it has to be a sound argument. You mm -hmm. can't just throw things out there. Uh, you can't say things uh, without having some kind of a, a basis or a ground for saying it. And that's one thing about uh, at least the universities in the United States and the, that uh, you can't do that. You have to have, uh, you have to have uh, a, a sound argument and, and also uh, references in that argument. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the peer review process is you're reviewed not just by your peers like on Twitter where you say, I think Donald Trump Jr. is on drugs. 
And then everyone that hates Donald Trump Jr. says, yeah, you're right. And then everyone that's a supporter of Donald Trump Jr. says, you have no proof of that. What about Hunter Biden? You know, that's that's the peers of the rabble. <laughs> and, I, and in academia, it's people who also study this stuff, who look into this stuff, who have read the same articles, who have done the research that are your peers reviewing you. You see what I'm saying? So it's not just Absolutely. the riffraff. You're, you're sort of getting rid of the riffraff when you go into academia. And, and that's why uh, this is a different subject, and that's why the university system needs to be protected from political influence mm -hmm. so that they can argue things from a intellectual and from a, uh, a, a, a logical background, yes. a logical approach. I mean, sometimes the science... Uh, gets in the way of political initiatives. And it's like, do you deny science? Or, you know, do you cut funding to an inconvenient form of scientific inquiry? It's like, you probably shouldn't, you know. But if if reality doesn't conform with your political beliefs, then change reality. I think that's sort of the lesson that we've learned in the last five to ten years. And again, that's why the universities, that's deal with uh, science and reality must be independent of the political influence. Because mm -hmm. the politics, politics will do that anyway. They will cut things. or They'll do what they want to do. But the point is, uh, in our country, in the United States, your freedom to, to state, the, the argument is still there. That's not removed. You can make a decision uh, outside that argument. But the argument is still there. Mm-hmm. So and you're and you're allowed and you're allowed to do that, right, David? Yes. So we're 15 minutes in already. Should we start reading the article? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. The robber That's barons good. of Beijing can China survive its gilded age by Yuan Yuan Ang? It seemed like a typical story of Chinese corruption. Stuffing suitcases full of company shares, the businessman lavished bribes on influential officials in exchange for cheap loans to subsidize his railroad projects. The target of his largesse? Those in charge of public infrastructure and budgets were his friends and business associates. Their family members ran firms in the steel industry, which stood to benefit from the construction of new track. Over time, as the ties between the officials and the businessmen grew closer, the officials doubled their financial support for his ventures, indulging his inflated costs, and ignoring the risk of losses. Slowly but surely, however, a financial crisis brewed. Stories like this are endemic to China. Business leaders colluding with officials to exploit development projects for personal enrichment, graft infecting all levels of government, and politicians encouraging capitalists to take on outsized risks. No wonder some observers have insisted since the 1990s that the Chinese economy will soon collapse under the weight of its own excesses and bring down the regime with it. But here's the twist. The businessman is not Chinese, but American. And the tale took place in the United States, not China. It describes Leland Stanford, the 19th century railroad tycoon who helped catapult the United States' modernization, but whose path to immense fortune was paved with corrupt deals. The Gilded Age, which began in the 1870s, was an era of crony capitalism as well as extraordinary growth and transformation. Following the devastation of the Civil War, the United States rebuilt and boomed. Millions of farmers moved from fields to factories. Infrastructure opened up long-distance commerce. New technology spawned new industries, and unregulated capital flowed freely. 
in the process. Swashbuckling entrepreneurs who seized on the right opportunities at the right time, Stanford, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, amassed titanic levels of wealth, while a new working class earned only a pittance in wages. Politicians colluded with tycoons and speculators manipulated markets. Yet instead of leading to disintegration, the corruption of the Gilded Age ushered in a wave of economic, social, and political reforms, the Progressive Era. This, along with imperial acquisitions, paved the way for the United States to rise and become the superpower of the 20th century. China is now in the midst of its own Gilded Age. Private entrepreneurs are growing fabulously wealthy from special access to government privileges, as are the officials who illicitly grant them. Recognizing the dangers of crony capitalism, Chinese President Xi Jinping is attempting to summon China's own progressive era, an age of less corruption and more equality, through brute force. The problem, however, is that this is not the way to ensure that real reform takes hold. Xi is suppressing the bottom-up energy that holds the key to solving China's current woes. And in so doing, he may end up making them even worse. There we go. I read that. I read that. I put a little mustard on that, you know. I like it. I like <laughs> it. And that's, that's a very good opening. Yes. Uh, but again, very well written. Um, yeah, they came up and pretty much presented a gilded age as a as a mechanism to compare China and the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so I think that she's going to talk about this, but we had a bottom up solution to our gilded age, muckrakers, you know, sort of exposing fraud, unionization to sort of give power back to the workers from the robber barons. And, and, and a lot of stuff happened. I don't, I mean, I'm not that big of a student of history, but I know that the progressive era was sort of driven by the people. And what she is saying is that President Xi is trying to drive a backlash against crony capitalism by sheer force of will, by central edict, and that that's not going to work. Now, my question is, what if it does? <laughs> Well, I, you know, this may be a little bit off topic, but when I, when I read this, uh, she's talking about history. Mm-hmm. She's talking about uh, politics. Mm-hmm. She's talking about economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then really that is based on uh, anthropology. It's based on how people's behavior, how companies behave. Uh, I mean, so much is happening at the same time here. Uh, how do how are people going to react to a to a socialist or a or a capitalist type of regime, or when you bottom up changes or top down change? How do people react? How do businesses react? How do come? It's a fascinating topic, and uh, and she kind of pulls in a lot of different uh, viewpoints at the same time mm-hmm. uh, when she begins when she begins to uh, argue this thing, and. Uh, she sets the stage, and again, she has the framework. The frame is the Gilded Age, yeah, and ours is late 19th century. And she's, she's, I think she's getting ready to say that China is kind of in their own Gilded Age. Yes. Uh, but then when you have a Gilded Age, you have a lot of forces happening at the same time. And which one's going to be more powerful to get us through it mm-hmm. or to get China through it? And I think another thing, too, David, is that this— 
this is a very, very important thing to think about, especially today. Uh, not only China, but other types of uh, uh, theaters like the European theater and the and the actually eventually the African theater. Or, so or, I think or America right now. Are there new robber barons in America? And are those robber barons named Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, um, Sergey Brin, Larry Page? I don't know. Yes. I, could, I could go on. Uh, Richard Ellison. <laughs> uh, maybe that's true, right? That's are exactly right. But also, when you look at them, and I think when you look what she's getting ready to say, is that, yes, uh, you can look at these barons. And you could say, yo, look what they've done. This is the bad part. But there's also good parts. Uh, you also build things. But also in building them, you're going to have some some negative uh, collateral damage as well. So it's a fascinating subject. Mm -hmm. Shall we continue? Sure. Would you like to read or should I continue reading? You can go ahead and read. You, okay. you, you put some you put mustard on put it. Put some mustard? I'll, I'll try to put some mustard on it. Category yeah. error. For students of corruption, China poses a baffling puzzle. Normally, corrupt countries are poor and stay that way. Study after study has shown a strong statistical relationship between corruption and poverty. But China has managed to sustain four decades of economic growth despite levels of corruption that even she has described as, quote, grave and, quote, Shocking. Why does it seem to have bucked the trend? The answer lies in the type of corruption that prevails in China. Conventional metrics of corruption ignore the different varieties it comes in. The most popular metric, the Corruption Perceptions Index, released by Transparency International every year, measures... Corruption is a one-dimensional problem that ranges on a universal scale from 0 to 100. In 2020, China scored 42, ranking it as more corrupt than Cuba, Namibia, and South Africa. Conversely, high-income democracies consistently rank among the cleanest countries in the world, reinforcing the popular belief that corruption is a malaise that is exclusive to poor countries. Although appealing in its simplicity, this conception of corruption is misleading. In reality, corruption comes in distinct flavors, each exerting different social and economic harms. The public is familiar with the three main types. The first is petty theft, police officers shaking down people on the street, for example. The second is grand theft, national elites siphoning off massive sums from public treasuries into private accounts overseas. And the third is speed money, petty bribes paid to regular officials to bypass red tape and delays and grease the wheels of bureaucracy. All three types are illegal, vociferously condemned and rampant in poor countries. But corruption comes in another more elusive variety, access money. In this kind of transaction, capitalists offer high stakes rewards to powerful officials in exchange not just for speed, but also for access to exclusive lucrative privileges, including cheap credit, land grants, monopoly rights, procurement contracts, tax breaks, and the like. Access money can manifest itself in illegal forms such as massive bribes and kickbacks, but it also exists in perfectly legal forms. Take lobbying, which is a legitimate means of political representation in the United States and other democracies. In exchange for influence over laws and policies, powerful groups fund political campaigns and promise politicians plush positions after they leave office. Different types of corruption harm countries in different ways. Petty theft and grand theft are like toxic drugs. They directly and unambiguously hurt the economy by draining public and private wealth while delivering no benefits in return. Speed money is akin to painkillers. It may relieve a headache, but it doesn't improve one's strength. 
Access money, on the other hand, is like steroids. It spurs muscle growth and allows one to perform superhuman feats, but it comes with serious side effects, including the possibility of a complete meltdown. Once one unbundles corruption, the Chinese paradox ceases to look so baffling. Over the past four decades, corruption in China has undergone a structural evolution, moving away from thuggery and theft and toward access money. By rewarding politicians who serve capitalist interests and enriching capitalists who pay for privilege, this now dominant form of corruption has stimulated commerce, construction, and investment, all of which contribute to GDP growth. But it has also exacerbated inequality and bred systemic risks. Bank loans, for example, go disproportionately to politically connected companies, forcing cash-strapped entrepreneurs to borrow from shadow banks at usurious rates. Connected companies, flush with excess credit, can then afford to spend irresponsibly and speculate in real estate. Furthermore, because politicians personally benefit from the investments they bring into their jurisdictions, they are driven to borrow and build feverishly regardless of whether the projects are sustainable. As a result, the Chinese economy is not just a high-growth economy, but also a high-risk and out-of-balance economy. Very good. And, and that's what happens when you grow fast. Uh, uh, things are never that easy. Yes. Uh, things are not, they're not one-dimensional, they're multi-dimensional. And when you have multi-dimensions, uh, things are going to be moving not in an even fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, also, you know, I've read this article already, so I know why are local officials acting the way that they're acting? And the answer is quite obvious to me. Um, that's the way the system's designed. So this last paragraph, especially when she talks about how... Um, Something about real estate. That's the big thing. Um, you know, so they're personally they driven to borrow and build feverishly, regardless of. Uh, that's sort of the ace in the hole that local officials have is real estate. Sort of, you know, building projects and stuff. So that's what gets optimized for. And it's all speculation and less productive. And that's sort of what the article goes into in the future. I just... It's funny when you read something and you're like, but this is going to lead to that. And it's like, yeah, it's going to lead to that because you already read the article. <laughs> you know? Well, the, the very last sentence is that uh, the Chinese economy is not just high growth economy, but also high risk and out of balance economy. Uh, that's true. But because any type of economic system is so um, uh, complicated, that that's going to be true no matter where you are and what you're doing, uh, even in, in in any country. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not just in China, but the thing is that China had uh, China has a different uh, mechanism than we do. Yes, in the United States. Uh, and so, is it right or wrong? Well, they're both moving in the same kind of direction. They just want to grow, mm -hmm. uh, and they want to become powerful. And they have different ways of doing it. Uh, we know. Uh, but they're still trying to become uh, powerful. Yes. So their speculation has occurred in the real estate market. And we saw speculation in the real estate market, housing market. But that caused our 2008 meltdown in America. That's right. That's so, right. And there was, there was uh, corruption. Yeah. But the thing of it is, is that uh, 
the other thing that I'm reading is I'm thinking, this is, yeah, she's right, uh, you know, about access money and speed money, and that's true. Uh, but then again, uh, there is no real formula on exactly how to do things optimally. And so what you do is you try things and some things work, some things don't, and you keep moving toward toward a solution, one solution to another solution. This works and it doesn't work. And so there is no real way to say, oh, this was perfect. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of decisions will never be perfect. Uh, you will always have problems as you grow uh, in history, today, and even in the future. Yes. And if uh, in order to eliminate problems, you're probably going to uh, eliminate uh, uh, growth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because people uh, people grow when uh, when they're challenged. I mean, you talk about the Gilded Age, but I'm sure that in America, like Lake Mead provides water to a lot of Arizona or California, you know, Imperial Valley agriculture. So I'm sure that when Lake Mead was built, when the Hoover Dam was built and Lake Mead was formed, some palms were getting greased. You know, there was some corruption going on. I'm sure that the the concrete contractors, the steel rebar contractors, there was some competition there and there was some corruption. And just because there was corruption doesn't mean that had you not done that project, I'm sure that California would have grown at a fraction of the rate that it did over the next 80 years or next 100 years. So, I mean, there's a cause and effect to everything. And just because something has a corrupt origin story, like once it's in real, once it's in reality... It's in it's in the game. It's in it's in the state of play, right? That's correct. That's right. And so you can never really know how thing how things are going to work, uh, and you take your best shot, and, and they are. Uh, but they again, getting back to the decision, it's easy for someone in the United States in this system uh, to uh, argue against their system. But I don't know. It also could be argued that both systems are trying to do the same thing, and that is grow. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could argue that. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying uh, let's tr- try to understand their side. Yes. There's corruption in every system, the, like lobbying. Like I think that Yuan Yuan Ang makes a good point about lobbying. It's completely legal. It's not considered corrupt at all. But if you take a look at what a lobbyist does, it seems an awful lot like corruption, doesn't it? Yeah, why don't you pass why don't you pass this legislation? It is going to fundamentally hurt your constituents, but it's going to help our interest group, whether it's you know oil drillers or you know cattle ranchers, whatever. And so it's going to hurt your people, but it's going to help us. And in exchange, when you leave office, we'll give you a job that pays a quarter million dollars a year. And it's like that seems a lot like corruption to me, but it's legalized corruption. Yeah. Or if you do that now, I'll make sure that this company that your relatives are in or your son is in or your daughter or your family, I'll make sure that this over here is going to be perfectly supported. They get a contract. Uh, They get a contract. And oh, yeah, I just believe that they're the best company. Why? Because they're related to this this political decision that was made. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there again, these kind of things will always happen. Uh, you, you're going to try to make sure that it's for the good of everyone, uh, at least in the United States. Actually, in everywhere, even in China, they want. There have been different different uh, leaders, uh, emperors or whatever they're called, uh, coming in and going out. But uh, 
you know, people think of the people to, as well. Yeah. Uh, different different parts of the uh, population. I think about, I mean, this is a little off topic. It was very off topic. But I think about Felicity Huffman and uh, Aunt Becky, Lori Laughlin. So, <laughs> yeah. so that was corruption. They corruptly got their kids into schools where they wouldn't have qualified to be in by sort of greasing the palms of certain people, you know, doing a little bit of inside baseball and... And so they got sent. But when I remember when they got in trouble, and it's like it's crazy how you can spend two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, get your kid in, and go to jail. But when you spend six million and you donate a wing to uh, campus, you know you build a building on campus, and your kid gets in, that's totally legal. So it's fascinating. Like it's like, what's the difference between the two? The amount of money. 300,000, you're going to jail. 6 million, oh, it's totally legal. It's it's fascinating that it works that way. Institutional giving. Well, another way, another way to frame that, David, is that uh, you could argue it's the same thing. Both of them are the same, but one's illegal and one's illegal. Mhm. And what's the difference between legal and illegal? Uh, it's that uh, there's a law against it. Yeah. Well, you can't do that. There's not a law against that. Uh, there could be a law against that, but it's not right now. Yeah. And so whoever passed a law uh, against that, you can't do it. So it's the same. It's you're giving hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, and you're getting the same thing. Yep. That is a very good point. And so uh, the laws in China are not the same laws we have here. Mm-hmm. It's not the same laws that there are in other countries. Yes. And this is, again, this is off topic. I'm just sort of derailing the conversation today. Are you spitballing there, David? I think this is a Winston Churchill story, but I might just be making this up. I've heard this before about how Winston Churchill's at a party. And he goes up to this lady, he's all drunk, and he says, Ma'am, would you have sex with me for a million dollars? She says, well, well, I suppose I would. A million dollars is a lot of money. He's like, would you have sex with me for five dollars? And she says, Winston Churchill, what do you take me for? And he says, well, we've already determined what you are. Now we're just negotiating a price. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So that's sort of like the college admission scandal, you know. <laughs> He's, he, was, he was a smart guy. He was a funny guy. Okay, back to the article, right? Uh-huh. The evolution of corruption. This dramatic yes. evolution of corruption and capitalism began with Deng Xiaoping, who steered China in a new direction after three decades of disaster under Mao Zedong. Without explicitly saying so, Deng introduced a new religion, pragmatism. He recognized that simultaneous political and economic liberalization would be too destabilizing for China. For a nation shaken by chaos, he said in a historic 1978 speech, Stability and unity are of prime importance. Thus, Deng chose the path of partial economic liberalization. Instead of leaping straight into capitalism, he introduced market reforms on the margins of the planned economy and delegated authority to local governments. In doing so, he laid the ground rules for profit sharing within the bureaucracy. That is, apparatchiks would personally benefit from capitalism as long as they stayed loyal to the Chinese Communist Party. 
No wonder officials at all levels enthusiastically embraced market reforms. As the reforms got underway, many officials doubled as surrogate entrepreneurs, operating collective enterprises, recruiting investors through personal networks, and running businesses on the side. But as markets opened up beginning in the 1980s, corruption flourished. It came in forms that were particular to a still backward country with a mixed economy and a government with little capacity to monitor millions of bureaucrats. Local governments, for example, held what were called small treasuries, slush funds filled with the unauthorized fees, fines, and levies extracted from residents and businesses. Because central regulators exerted scant oversight over local budgets, embezzlement proliferated. So did petty bribery, as the emerging class of private entrepreneurs was forced to pay local bureaucrats to overcome red tape. Even giant multinational corporations such as McDonald's were not spared. At one point, local agencies slapped its restaurants in Beijing with 31 fees, most of them illegal. In the countryside, such corruption led to widespread complaints about the burdens shouldered by farmers, sparking protests across rural China. Then came the Tiananmen Square crackdown of 1989, which stuck, struck a devastating blow to the reform movement. At that point, China could have e easily reverted to Maoism. Instead, Deng rekindled the flames of capitalism through his famous Southern Tour. Uh, in 1992, before passing the baton to his successor, Zhang Zemin. The new leadership took Deng's personal, partial market reforms in the 1980s to the next level. Beijing's pledge to establish a socialist market economy may have rung hollow to many Western ears, but it soon unleashed an institutional revolution. In some ways, this post-Deng period can be likened to the United States progressive era. Beijing dismantled key elements of central planning, for example, price controls and production quotas, and drastically reduced state ownership in the economy. From 1998 to 2004, about 60% of workers in state-owned enterprises were laid off. Simultaneously, the central government pursued bold reforms in banking, public administration, public finance, and regulation. These efforts laid the foundation for an accelerated phase of growth, but without formal political liberalization. At the helm of this progressive campaign was Zhu Rongji, China's premier from 1998 to 2003. Famous for giving fiery speeches in which he berated local officials for their ineptitude, Zhu rolled out a wide range of administrative reforms. Beijing consolidated public bank accounts in order to eliminate illegal slush funds and keep a closer watch over financial transactions. It divested government agencies of their side businesses to prevent them from abusing their regulatory powers, and it replaced cash payments of fees and fines with electronic payments to prevent bureaucrats from extorting citizens or stealing from the public coffers. The reforms worked. Beginning in 2000, the number of corruption cases involving embezzlement and the misuse of public funds fell steadily. Media mentions of, quote, arbitrary fees and, quote, bureaucratic extortion, an indicator of the public's concern about these issues, also declined. It was no surprise then that by 2011, when Transparency International asked Chinese respondents whether they had paid a bribe to access public services in the past year, only 9% said they had, compared with 54% of Indians and 84% of Cambodians. In China, at least in the more developed coastal areas, the growth-impeding forms of corruption had finally come under control. You're muted. Yep, very interesting. Yep. Uh, I think as a statistician, one thing that's probably of note to you is creating a corruption index and just saying... Oh, there's a number between 1 and 100. That's how corrupt you are. She's pointing out that's a little inelegant. You know? 
That's deceptive because it's not a it's not a linear scale. It's not a single scale. Mm -hmm. And she points it out. There's multiple types of corruption. And but uh, as a statistician, it's not so much you can create ind indexes. That's fine. But what do you do with them and how do you use them and how much decision uh, do you put on them? And so that's pretty much what, you know, what they did back then. Uh, and it probably served a purpose. Uh, but you really have to drill down deep to all the factors, not mm -hmm. just not just one index, but a factor. And the, the indexes are 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 valuable mm -hmm. uh, as indicators to help in your decision making. They should make the decision for you. Yeah, uh, they should be they should be supportive. But again, I, it's, I'm struck with this last part here. Uh, I'm struck with uh, how uh, decisions that were made uh, and natural. Uh, uh, people will, the people will naturally respond. Businesses will naturally respond to it. People will naturally respond to it. And you still have corruption and extortion, but uh, uh, it has to be curtailed. It has to be, uh, uh, you try to prevent it from happening because it will happen. Mm -hmm. So I, again, when you make, when you make decisions like this, either economic decisions, political decisions, uh, business decisions, uh, you're going to have the effect of the people's reaction. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't ignore that. You cannot ignore that. And that's but, why the people are so powerful. But I think, though, that, you know, she's saying the growth impeding forms of corruption had finally come under control in this final sentence. Mm -hmm. I, but I think that in India or in Cambodia, the growth impeding forms of corruption are often they're normalized. So it's like, oh, man, I want to take advantage of this public service, but I have to pay the person a bribe. And it's like, that's just the way we do things here in, in Cambodia. And in China, it's like, we want to root that out because that's not positive corruption. <laughs> the access money is. It sort of helps us grow. It helps us hit key metrics. But the, the petty theft and grand theft aren't. So we need to root those out. It's fascinating. Well, it I don't know. Let me just, just throw this out there. It may get back to where you stand. Depends on where you sit. Uh, the system in Cambodia may not be the same type of system as it was in China. And uh, the index uh, will have a different meaning in Cambodia or India than it than does in China. Mm -hmm. And because uh, they're all in different uh, uh, stages of development and growth. Mm hmm. And interest, and politics, <laughs> and people in charge. So they're all different. And so, uh, again, as you pointed out, one index of nine percent and fifty-four percent, eighty-four percent. You know, that's that can be used as an argument, but it can't really be used in decision making uh, alone. You have to pass it through all different kind of factors. Mm -hmm. But I guess what she's saying is. The bad, the very bad form of corruption, where you're just siphoning money out of the system and funneling it into people's pockets, that are mid-level government officials, that had sort of ceased in China at the beginning of the century. They sort of cracked down on that and they succeeded, but that doesn't mean that corruption went away. It took on a different form. Yeah. Well, again, uh, the way she said that, growth impeding forms of corruption had finally come under control. That doesn't mean they eliminate corruption. That means they've begun to, to as you say, uh, organize things such that uh, uh, you can grow. Mm -hmm. 
And so there, there will still be uh, what you define as corruption, just like in the United States. There are things that happen here that can be defined as corruption. Yeah, they're super corrupt. And some of them, you just say that they're legal and then they're not corrupt anymore. That's right. Like lobbying. <laughs> well, some some forms of lobbying, yeah. Um, shall we? I think there's two more sections left. Okay. Shall we charge through? Pay, pay to play. Now we're talking about access money. Access money, <clears throat> however, exploded after 2000 the year 2000, the number of bribery cases soared, and they involved ever larger sums of money and officials of ever more seniority. Newspapers ran front-page stories on corruption scandals, replete with lurid details of decadence and greed. A former minister of railways was charged with taking $140 million in bribes, not including the more than 350 apartments he had been given. The head of one state-owned lender allegedly kept a harem with over 100 mistresses and was arrested with three tons of cash hidden in his home. A police chief in Chongqing amassed a private museum collection that included precious works of art and fossilized dinosaur eggs. Why did access money explode? Because the reforms China took did not diminish the government's power over the economy so much as change it. Whereas in the 1980s, the primary role of public officials was to plan and command, in the globalized capitalist economy of the 90s, they acquired new functions, attracting high-stakes investment projects, borrowing and lending capital, leasing land, demolishing and building at a frenzied pace. All these activities gave officials new sources of power that were previously unthinkable in a socialist system. The change can be traced to a seemingly obscure problem, a fiscal imbalance between the central government and local governments. In 1994, as part of their modernizing drive, Zhang and Zhu recentralized tax revenue, keeping the lion's share in Beijing and drastically reducing the fraction kept by localities. The local governments were left financially strapped, even as they faced continued pressure to promote growth and deliver public services. So an alternative source of income was found, land. All land in China belongs to the state and thus cannot be sold, but the right to use it can be leased. Beijing allowed local governments to lease those rights to corporate entities in order to raise revenue. From that point onward, China's local army of local officials marched away from industrialization and toward urbanization. Instead of relying on manufacturing as the primary engine of growth, local governments turned their attention to leasing agricultural land to real estate developers for residential and commercial use. In the two decades after 1999, the amount of revenue raised through the leasing of land rights grew more than 120-fold. Developers profited handsomely from the, this arrangement, collecting exorbitant rents after leasing farmland at bargain prices and turning it into glitzy real estate projects. In one instance, related to me by a bureaucrat, the value of a piece of land increased by a multiple of 35, simply through being converted from rural to urban use. The local officials who controlled land rights also did well for themselves, accepting hefty kickbacks for aiding their cronies in securing prized parcels. They helped developers rig auctions to buy land plots cheaply, and they deployed the power of the state to artificially speed up the process of urbanization. Local functionaries packed farmers into suburban apartments to free up rural land, and they invested heavily in urban infrastructure, such as electric grids, public utilities, parks, and transportation, to increase the value of new developments. All this new infrastructure was funded not only through the sale of land rights, but also through loans. The law prohibited local governments from running budget deficits, but officials got around that rule by setting up subsidiary companies known as government financing vehicles. 
These entities took out loans to raise money, which the officials then used to finance their pet infrastructure and construction projects. It was this twin source of credit, leasing land and borrowing money, that financed China's massive infrastructure boom. Between 2007 and 2017, the country's more than doubled the length of its highways from 34,000 miles to 81,000 miles, enough to go around the world more than three times, a government website boasted. The construction of subways was just as frenzied. China now boasts eight of the world's 12 longest subway systems. Although it turbocharged China's urbanization, the infrastructure boom generated new risks. Local governments and their financing vehicles accumulated mounting debts. Even the central regulators did not know the scale of these liabilities until 2011, when they conducted their first audit, which found local governments had borrowed about $1.7 trillion. Despite repeated edicts from Beijing against borrowing, local debts continued to rise, reaching $4 trillion in 2020, nearly the equivalent to the total income local governments earned that year. This is the bubble that so many fear could burst. To understand the marriage of growth and corruption, consider the case of an official named Xi Zhangye. In 2004, Xi became the party secretary of Yangzhou. Repositioning the city as a historic tourist site, he launched a massive demolition and construction campaign that earned him the nickname Bulldozer Xi. These efforts paid off. The media hailed Xi for reviving the city. The United Nations recognized his city with an award. Tourism flourished, and the price of luxury real estate skyrocketed. In 2010, Xi was transferred to a more prominent post, mayor of Nanjing, a provincial capital. But, as investigators would later discover, Xi was sharing directly in the profits of his ambitious urban redevelopment schemes. Like other Chinese bureaucrats, his official salary was very low. His real compensation came from corporate contributions. In a city undergoing a massive reconstruction, Xi directed nearly all the government contracts to a private construction company named Gold Mantis, owned by his longtime friends, which repaid him in the form of kickbacks. During Xi's tenure in Yangzhou, the company's profits grew 15-fold in just six years, and when the company subsequently went public, G received a percentage of the shares. Stories such as G's suggest that portrayals of the Chinese state as predatory or rapacious miss the true nature of its crony capitalism. G lined his own pockets, but he also successfully transformed Yangzhou. In recent decades, there have been many officials like him, leaders who are corrupt, yet also deliver commerce, infrastructure, and public services. Unlike politicians in other countries who simply steal from the public or put obstacles in the way of entrepreneurs, these officials collect bribes by making it easier, not harder, for capitalists to do business. None of this is to say that access money is good for the economy. To the contrary, like steroids, it causes unbalanced artificial growth. Owing to Chinese officials' power over land, collusion between businesses and the state has funneled excessive investment into one particular sector— real estate, which offers unmatched windfalls for the politically connected. As a result, Chinese businesses face perverse incentives to shift their efforts away from productive activities, especially manufacturing, and towards speculative investment. Some state-owned railway companies and defense contractors, for example, now find their real estate investment activities to be more profitable than their core businesses. Beijing recognizes the threat that such a shift poses. In 2017, it issued a warning against abandoning productive for speculative activities. Access money also exacerbates inequality. <clears throat> Within the business world, politically connected capitalists can easily secure government contracts, cheap loans, and discounted land, giving them an enormous edge over their competitors. 
in society at large, the super-rich snap up luxury apartments as an investment property. While urban housing remains out of reach for many ordinary Chinese, the result is a perverse situation in which the minority of Chinese people who own homes often do not live in them, and the majority who need homes cannot afford them. Okay, that was a big section. It was, but it was very interesting. And and I, she makes some very good points. Mm-hmm. Some very good points that, uh, yeah, uh, they line their pockets uh, and they're corrupt in one sense. In the other sense, they do their job. Yeah. Uh, they uh, move commerce forward and they 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 uh, build a they build a city. Yeah. So both happen. And so the argument is, uh, if you're a government, uh, is it okay if some of the people get rich if the economy grows? Yeah. That's a, it's a good question. Yeah, they're, because they're getting rich they're, and they're doing their job. They're not and they're doing job. getting rich by not doing their job. Right. And do we do the same thing here? Like, oh, yeah, if you do a really good job, we'll pay you more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just open. It's not corrupt. Yeah. It's not. It's not. I don't want to say corrupt. It's. It's open. It's not. It's not. Uh, I think they give them the power to develop, to to generate their own money. Uh, but here in the United States, they say, no, we'll pay you that money, and they get a lot of money for for running things and becoming successful. Uh, but actually, they get a lot of money even when they're not successful. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we take the same time frame, look at Enron That's right. and their uh, mark-to-market accounting. You know, you had regulators at the Security and Exchange Commission. You had regulators, I'm sure, at FINRA, I don't know, where, wherever. The regulators live, and they're just making, you know, federal government salaries. So, they're, I mean, they have decent benefits. They're making a decent salary. But they're getting thousands and thousands of pages of financial documents from Enron that they're supposed to be the regulator for. And it's very confusing. And it's done by these people that are, you know, the executives at Enron are making, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 times more money than they are. And they have, you know, staff that's 10 times the size. You know, so it's like, well, you know, they're serious about this. Let's just give them a pass before it all comes crumbling down. It's sort of like, you know, why is a Chinese official making a small salary forced forced to be sit there and watch all of his buddies get super rich while he doesn't earn a dime? Like that just doesn't seem. I mean, that's human nature, right? Human nature. Yep. Are you going to still do that? Or are you going to make some changes mm-hmm. on where you're on where you're going to sit? Yeah. Yeah. But they did grow. That's the other thing too. They did grow. Yeah. And so when you do the, grow the economy or you grow an industry and you do grow, uh, is that what you want? And uh, what if they uh, had all these controls where it's, it uh, stymied the growth? Is mm-hmm. that something that are they willing to give up, allow that corruption to have the growth or eliminate the corruption and eliminate the growth? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a very difficult uh, position to be in. And some people say, no, there's no, I, I'm i sure there's going to be people who say, no, there's absolutely no room for any kind of corruption at all, fine. And so the result of that might be that there's no growth 
as a matter of fact, if you don't grow, you'll probably go backward and you start losing some of the benefits you have. Yes, but that leads us to the next part. Enter Xi, Xi Jinping. Now, listen, I think that what he's going to say is, yes, we've grown, but if we didn't have this corruption, we would grow more efficiently. That's right. That's what I think he's going to try to lay down the iron fist of justice. So well, shall, go go for it. Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing like uh, uh, the reason why you would grow fast is not the same reasons that you'll stay strong. Mm-hmm. In other words, you might have these reasons to grow, but then once you're there, you have to shift to stay strong because if you keep have the same reasons of growing those same reasons could be your demise. Mm -hmm. And so reasons for growth is not the same reasons for staying strong or same same reasons for uh, beginning stronger. Yeah. And so you have different stages of growth. And so maybe this is exactly what you needed to stimulate uh, the economy. But then once you've got that started, uh, in order to sustain it, you can't you can't keep going the way you've done it. So maybe that's what inner energy Enter Xi. Enter Xi. In 2012, Xi took on the mantle of leadership under ominous circumstances. The party was facing its biggest political scandal in a generation. Bo Xilai, a Politburo member once seen as a contender for the top position, had been dismissed from his posts and would soon be arrested on charges of graft and abuse of power. This wasn't just any corruption scandal. Bo, the son of a prominent Chinese Communist Party leader, was also implicated in the murder of a British businessman. He was also rumored to have been plotting a coup against Xi. This dramatic episode surely helped form Xi's worldview, imprinting in him a deep sense of insecurity not only about the party's future, but also about his own survival. For Xi, Bo's brazenness revealed that access money in a supersized economy had created elite factions far more powerful than those any previous leader had had to contend with. And, for the Chinese public, Bo's downfall offered a rare peek into the world of state business collusion and the lavish lifestyles of the political elite. It was now clear that China was rife with corruption, inequality, moral decay, and financial risk. Since Deng's reforms began, the party had successfully lifted an estimated 850 million people out of poverty by dint of sustained economic growth, but a small minority had benefited disproportionately, particularly those lucky enough to control property. In 2012, China's Gini coefficient, a measure of income inequality with zero representing perfect equality and one representing perfect inequality, reached 0.55, exceeding the United States figure of 0.45. This was an especially jarring distinction for a nominally communist country. A businessman in Shanghai described the whiplash to me this way. When I was growing up, Textbooks tried to convince us about the decadence of capitalism by showing a picture of rich American pets enjoying air conditioning, a luxury that few Chinese dreamed of having in those days. Today, my neighbor's dog will only drink Evian. No wonder Xi has chosen to define his legacy by fighting two key battles, one against corruption and the other against poverty. At his maiden speech to the Politburo, Xi did not mince words about the threat that Bo's saga represented. 
Corruption will doom the party and the state, he declared. Since then, he has launched the longest and widest-ranging anti-corruption drive in the party's history. By 2018, a staggering 1.5 million officials had been disciplined. Unlike previous anti-corruption campaigns, this one is purging not just low-level officials, but also high-level ones. Flies and tigers, in Xi's words. Is Xi's crackdown merely a pretext to purge his enemies or a genuine effort at reducing corruption? The answer is both. It would not be surprising if Xi has used the campaign to root out those who pose personal threats, including officials who were allegedly linked to the plot to overthrow his rule. But he has also set out to strengthen bureaucratic ethics. For example, issuing a list of eight regulations prohibiting extravagance and undesirable work practices, such as drinking on the job. His campaign has also been remarkably thorough, extending beyond public offices into state-owned companies, universities, and even official media outlets. An abrupt drop in the sale of luxury goods after the campaign began suggests a temporary restraint in bribery and conspicuous consumption, but Chinese citizens' perceptions have been mixed. While many are impressed by the forceful crackdown, others are disillusioned by the grotesque details of greed that the corruption investigations have revealed. Moreover, the campaign may not be doing much about the inequality. According to the Chinese government statistics, according to Chinese government statistics, although the country's Gini coefficient fell continuously from the year she took office to 2015, it has since picked up again. It is too soon to see whether Xi's campaign has substantially reduced the prevalence of access money, but two things are clear. First, Xi's forceful campaign has placed officials on high alert. My analysis of a cohort of 331 city party bosses found that 16% of them were removed for corruption between 2012 and 2017, a high rate of turnover that should give local leaders good reason to put their corruption on hold. Second, the only predictor of whether officials survived the crackdown was whether their patron, the official who oversaw their appointment, also survived. Performance didn't matter, suggesting that under Xi, the political system has become more personalist than rules-based. In short, Xi's campaign has had a mixed record. It has successfully struck fear into corrupt officials, but it has not removed the root causes of graft, namely the enormous power of the government over the economy and the patronage system and bureaucracy. That's fascinating, don't you think? Yeah, it is. It's actually, it's a little study in history and her perspective of history. But uh, she make, I think she makes some very good practical points. Mm -hmm. The personalist versus rules-based for a corruption crackdown, that doesn't seem like the best way to go about it, does it? No, but uh, when you think of it, though, uh, when I think of it, I just like, when you have rampant corruption, mm -hmm. uh, how do you bring it under control? Uh, the Once it's under control, then the rules-based regulation will, will work. But when it's not under control, incorporating a rule really probably will have no effect because it has to be managed by people who are corrupt. Mm -hmm. So the rules-based really has no power have no has no teeth uh until thing until corrupt is is uh, eliminated yes and when corruption is eliminated then it does have teeth so so maybe the the personalist is an approach to get things under control and then move to rules base mm -hmm. i don't know i'm just again throwing that out there 
Uh, that seems logical to me, too. Yeah, I think you're right. It's It reminds me of, and I'm going to derail the conversation again, of that podcast I heard about the guy that owns the club in New York letting Louis C.K. come and do stand-up. And the lady was so pissed because he'd just been, you know, me too'd, and he was, you know, um, a sex pervert or whatever. And it's like, don't you think that he should never work again? And... You know, the, the comedy club owner is like, well, I mean, what if he'd worked at Walmart and you'd found this stuff? Does he not deserve to ever have a job ever again? This is what he does. This is his job. I'm letting him come back. And the lady says, well, would you let Bill Cosby come back? And he says, no, I wouldn't let Bill Cosby come back. I says, well, what's, what's your rules? Like, how do you decide who gets to come back and who doesn't? And the guy thought about it. And he's like, I own the club. I'm just going to use my gut. I think Louis C.K. is funny. I'm going to let him come back. Because I own the club. It's just my personal decision. I think that's a little bit what Xi Jinping is doing. You know, he's using his gut. He's making it personal decisions based upon who stays and who goes. Because I'm sure that corruption, as pervasive as it is in the Chinese system, you can't purge the entire bureaucracy. That's right. So it's, it's like Yuan uh, Ong says, uh, where is it? It's... Dang it. It's somewhere in here. Oh, here it is. Is Xi's crackdown merely a pretext to purge his enemies or a genuine effort at reducing corruption? The answer is both. Yes. I think that's a very good line. So, So don't let a crisis go to waste. Like, yes, you can take out corrupt individuals that are very corrupt, but everyone's a little bit corrupt. So if someone's going to be a pain in your ass, take them out too under the guise of corruption, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not rules-based because it's like, I have a lot of work to do. I want to be emperor for life. You know, I want to be, uh, you know, premier of China for life. So we're not going to establish rules that I can't break. It's going to be how I feel. It's like the guy that owns the club. She's saying, I own the country. There is no rules. I, I'm doing it out of my gut. Yeah, because there are no really definite boundaries between, you know, again, laws are very, very tricky. You know, uh, you can go by the rule of the law or the spirit of the law. And uh, sometimes you have to make decisions on your gut. And uh, and she keeps ta- talking about these uh, indexes, too. Yeah, the Gini and, coefficient. Uh, the Gini coefficient. I think yeah. I re- I think I even remember that from my old political science scholar days. I'm getting all these spam calls today. It's so annoying. Okay. Yeah. We have one more section. Should we finish it off? Yep. Might as well. The road not taken. The road not taken. China does not exist in a vacuum, of course. Across the Pacific, its chief rival is also experiencing a repeat of the Gilded Age. I think this is what we were talking about earlier. This time, new yep. technology in the United States is grappling. Uh, this time, the new technology the United States is grappling with is not steam power, but algorithms, digital platforms, and financial innovations. Like China, the United States is beset by sharp inequality. 
Its government, too, fears the populist backlash from the losers of globalization, and the country is similarly struggling to reconcile the tensions between capitalism and its political system. In that sense, the world is witnessing a curious form of great power competition today, not a clash of civilizations, but a clash of two gilded ages. Both China and the United States are struggling to end the excesses of crony capitalism, but the two countries are pursuing this goal very differently. Transparency mandates, muckraking journalists, and crusading prosecutors were the central ingredients in the United States' battle against graft during the progressive era. Today, President Joe Biden's progressive agenda rests on restoring the integrity of democracy. She, on the other hand, has opted to stamp out inequality and corruption by tightening political control. She's pledge to eradicate rural poverty, for instance, has been carried out in the manner of a national campaign. Central planners have imposed hard targets on local officials and the entire bureaucracy. Even the entire society has been mobilized to meet them, regardless of what it takes. Although the cause is noble, the methods are extreme. Edicts from the top pressure local officials to eliminate poverty by fiat, by relocating millions of residents from remote areas to suburbs, for example, regardless of whether or not they want to move. Some of the uprooted now have neither farmland nor jobs. The crusade against corruption is similarly top-down. In addition to arresting large numbers of corrupt bureaucrats, she has exhorted officials to demonstrate loyalty and adhere to party ideology. These measures have resulted in bureaucratic inaction and paralysis. Lazy governance, as the Chinese say, with nervous officials opting to do nothing so as to avoid blame, instead of introducing potentially controversial initiatives. Xi's insistence on political correctness also extinguishes honest feedback within the bureaucracy. Officials fear reporting... Fear of reporting bad news, for instance, may have contributed to the delay in China's early response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Let's circle back to this for sure, okay? Um, It didn't have to be this way. China could have taken it a different path in its quest to control corruption. Before she, in fact, the country was making steady progress towards open governance. Some local governments were increasing transparency and starting to solicit public input on policies. Despite the constraints of censorship, investigative newspapers such as Kaixin and Southern Weekend regularly uncovered scandals that prompted reforms. Several localities experimented with reporting the assets and income of government officials, a move supported by legal activists. In 2012, central regulators considered turning these experiments into national law. As soon as Xi's anti-corruption campaign began, however, these bottom-up efforts were snuffed out, and the government tightened its control over civil society. In many ways, Xi's centralization of personal power has put him in an exceptional position to challenge vested interests and advance difficult reforms. He could reduce monopoly control of state-owned enterprises and empower private companies, which as of 2017, accounted for more than 90% of new jobs created. A strong private sector would accelerate the type of broad-based growth that reduces inequality. Or she could correct the fiscal imbalance between the central government and local governments, so that the latter are not forced to lease land and borrow money to raise revenue. He could also streamline the ballooning demands imposed by central planners on local governments, a move that would both reduce their need to exercise regulatory power and relieve their budgetary pressures. Yet she has shown little interest in such reforms. Instead, in his bid to end crony capitalism, he is reviving the command system, the very approach that failed miserably under Mao. After successfully controlling the COVID-19 outbreak, he appears more convinced than ever that national mobilization and top-down orders under his strongman leadership are the only path forward. 
But by rejecting a bottom-up approach, she is stifling China's adaptability and entrepreneurship, the very qualities that helped the country navigate its way through so many obstacles over the years. It's like riding a bike, an official once told me. The tighter you grip the handles, the harder it is to balance. The end. Yuan Yuan Ong is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan and the author of China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. Yeah, let's let's kind of let's kind of <clears throat> that is a very good ending. It's a very good article. Mm-hmm. She's a good writer, and she's she's very knowledgeable in this, and she writes extremely well, and she brings up a lot of good points, but a lot of very very technical and very challenging and difficult points too. Yes. Uh, going back here uh, by rejecting the bottom up approach, well maybe. This last paragraph, what she is is doing. Am I where, uh, am I close? What? Am I close to just on the screen? Where? This last paragraph. Oh, okay. There's going going backward. Yeah. This last this got last it, paragraph. Got it. I see it now. Yeah. And, and like he says, uh, he's she says uh, that uh, she. Xi's approach uh, is undermining uh, what what they did before. But, you know, and my thought is maybe she's right. Uh, but then having the devil's advocate, well, maybe what she is trying to do is trying to move in the right direction uh, with a strong hand, with a bottom-up uh, approach. Uh, I mean, rejecting a bottom-up approach to where, to get it started, and who knows that, that he can stay there. He, he might... He might start moving things around. Uh, depends on what is it really. Dep- when you have someone who's in control uh, and has and has strong strong measures, mm-hmm. you have to be careful with that amount of power. Uh, make sure that they have uh, the right interests at heart, because no matter what you do, there's going to be a good side and a bad side. Yes. Uh, some people will be helped, and some people will not be helped. But you have to be able to have the discipline to change when you need, when you need to change. Say, so, yeah, he may be abandoning things that worked in the past, but maybe that's what's needed today to get things moving in the right direction. And then he'll go back to things that will work. In mm-hmm. other words, again, I go back to the different stages. You know, it's not one size fits all. Uh, different things work at different times. Yes. Well, I would also like to say we have we've been to China. And that was, uh-huh. we went together uh, 2007, right? Correct. So that was shortly after the Zhang Jimin era and at, at, during the Hu Jintao era. And even then right. they were saying, yep, there's an anti-corruption campaign by the new regime. They're rounding up a lot of Zhang's people and they're sending them to prison. Some of them may never be seen again. Now I think that Xi Jinping realizes that, you know, like his anti-corruption campaign, is it to get rid of rivals or is it to root out corruption? It's both. I think he realizes that he may need to just hang on to power for as long as he can. And that decision calculus may make China weaker as long as he can hang on to power. Because leaving power is a good, surefire way to end up in jail. Or, you know, it's a surefire way to... so. When you have an authoritarian state where a new regime can punish people from the old regime, 
she says, well, that doesn't sound good to me. Why don't I stay leader forever? And then a lot of times your decision calculus will be, how do I stay leader forever? Not what's best for the country, right? That's right, that's right. And you could argue because uh, I want to stay in power so I can keep doing, moving in the same direction. And someone else coming in, you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. You don't know what they're going to be doing. Because right now, the leader has, again, this is what happens when you have a lot of power in a leader. Mm -hmm. And I will also say when we went to China uh, 15 years ago now, it's so crazy, it's been 14 years. Yeah. But we would visit, and I would ask, because we were you know, being led around by party officials. We went to a city hall type thing. Yes. And it was so gigantic. You remember this? It was like abandoned. And it was so gigantic. It was bigger than our county hall. It was bigger than our state capitol here. And Colorado state, state capitol is nice. You know, it's there's a big gold dome. It's a really nice building. This place was four times the size. And, of course, it may have been responsible for four times more people because there are more people in China. But what we saw in that particular municipality was a level of wealth that wasn't commensurate with the level of wealth in Denver and Colorado. And yet their government building was magnificent. And I, I was asking, like, how is any of this financed? And they wouldn't answer my question. And it might be that they were leasing local land and taking loans through their, like, like she said, through their you know, infrastructure investment locality loans corporations to build these magnificent things because it, it increased their bottom line somehow. But it, it, a lot of it was incongruous, you know? It's like this place is taken off. I think we've talked about the not so great mall of China before on this show, haven't we? I think so. Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, but while you're pulling it up, let me just mention the very first paragraph. They talked about the two gilded ages. And uh, you hear that term, but I, I looked it up on where did the guild, the, the term gilded age come from? And I guess uh, it was, you know, late 1800s, late 19th century when industrialization and growth and changes. But uh, I think it was it was coined by, by, I think, maybe Mark Twain or someone. They said the Gilded Age is because it's glittery on the outside, corrupt on the inside. So it's all glitter. It looks good, but inside it's corrupt. But then again, sometimes maybe... That's how things have grown. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying maybe that's how it's grown. So she starts with the road not taken, saying both China and the United States are not that much are not different in some respects. So, and so one is like the mall. You're getting to did you find it? Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah, it is.
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Probably when they grow that fast, probably so. But then, but then, what it takes. Uh huh. Like yeah, like the ship in uh, oh, what was the name of that ship in Sweden that sunk on its maiden voyage? Uh no, 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 no. In Sweden, in Denmark or Sweden, uh, that that actually, I guess I'm glad I did bring it up because that is something that uh, the Vasa, yeah. The Vasa was that the ship, the maiden, yeah. The Va, the uh, wh what country was that from? The Swedish Vasa. That is such a fascinating story. Uh, They said when you read when you read the story, the wind came up and blew it over and it sunk. But <laughs> but the thing of it is, Gustav he Gustavus whatever his name was, he wanted to build this to show his opulence that how big and how great he is and and uh, it was more top down type of make this happen, make this happen. And so the engineers feverishly built this thing as quickly as possible. Uh, without the stability of having it sustainable. But he did show, and it did leave the harbor, and it did go maybe around a bay, and all of a sudden uh, the wind blew it over and it sunk, and that was it. It was too hot, top-heavy. The point is, uh, it's not unsimilar as the Gilded Age. On the outside, it looks fascinating. It's glittery. It's, like, it's great, and it was great to look at. It should never have... Uh, you should never have launched it. <laughs> Just make it, make it sit in the harbor and look at it. So, this is fantastic. This is the biggest ship I've ever seen that the world has ever seen. But if you try to sail it, it's not sustainable. It's going to sink. And so, so it did serve his purpose. He did build the biggest ship ever at, in the 1600th, 17th century. It's set for about a kilometer. <laughs> but then again, the aftermath, who knows what happened after that? Maybe uh, they says, why did it sink? Here's why it sank. So maybe we need some more bottom up type uh, input the next time we build a ship that big. Yeah, and it was. Yeah. Yep, the Vasa and the. 
It really is. That it just, that's it. Look how grand, grandiose it is. It was just so elegant. It's just, that's it. That's the, that last one was, uh, that's how far it went. And then boom, it sunk. <laughs> oh, man. There must have been a, yeah. Well, I built it. It's not my root. It's not my fault. It sunk. Anyway, so that's that's what uh, she's saying about China, and the United States. You know that they, they want to build something, uh, but but when you build something, it can look really good on the outside. But what's going on on the inside? And is it like you were saying, David? Is it sustainable? Is it well? What you do to build it may not be the same uh, necessary, uh, the same type of structure. Uh, or the organization you have in a, in a company in a country uh, to be sustainable, and so you need you need a balance. But also, she said she also said something, David, about um, something else that uh, she mentioned about uh, the suburbs. Edicts from top pressure officials say, okay, I think in the second paragraph or third paragraph, the third paragraph. Uh, the edicts and all of a sudden re relocating millions of residents from remote areas to suburbs, for example, whether they wanted to move or not. You know, you think, okay, you say, well, that's China for you. It says, well, yeah, but that also happens in the United States too, because they'll have something called urban renewal. And so the urban renewal will say, we want to take these old uh, uh, houses out and they pass a law, they pass the money, the funds, and all of a sudden they tear down their houses and they build these these uh, low uh, rent uh, uh, apartment buildings. And I remember, uh, I remember when I was a kid, they the the people come and says, I've lived here all my life. I don't want to move out of my house. And they say, I got to move out of my house into this one little. Uh, I can afford it, but I don't want to live in this apartment. I've never lived there. And whether you want to or not, you got to do it because that's what the laws were. So, so yeah, the same thing can happen. It's not the same way. It was different and there was legal, it was legal, but the difference between legal uh, and, and corruptness sometimes if it's legal, and uh, in, in one country it's corrupt because it's not legal. It's legal, so it's not corrupt, but pretty much the same thing. So you gotta be, gotta be careful when you start uh, throwing darts. <laughs> Uh, that's true. That's true. Oh, no. My mic has been muted. I can hear you. I know, but on the broadcast, it's been muted. The whole time? No, since the end when I played the outro music. Wait, no, I didn't play the outro music. Oh, no. I don't know. I don't know how long it's been muted. Oh, because I can hear you. Yeah. But you were going to mention something about the COVID-19 outbreak. Oh, no, it was, uh, I hopefully, I, it was a few back. Yeah, it's right here. The, the insistence on political correctness extinguishes honest feedback within the bureaucracy. So let me pull up Caliber. Mm-hmm. I think this is a huge thing. Not having a free press, you get people that are afraid to criticize the regime. That's what we were talking about at the top of the broadcast. And 
Um, yeah, you get a, I don't know. So like, you don't get the good results that you would hope for, right? Yeah, a free press will 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 say it what they see, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not going to be biased or shouldn't be biased. It, they're reporting exactly what's being seen. Now you can bias reporting, but still, a free press is 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 necess- is good in that sense. But I think this, by the same vein, a free university, free a uh, university free of uh, political influence also is necessary for the analysis. Mm-hmm. And so one is reporting, the other is analysis. And so you need both of those coming together saying, look, this is what I think this is. And also today, a lot of the universities in the United States is being attacked by uh, they're saying, well, this is what has happened in the past. And they talk about uh, the different things that have happened in the past in such a way that you say, you can't talk about that. You can't talk about that. And they go, well, that it happened. And uh, you can have to only talk about what's nice and clean and squeaky clean. And that's not, that's not, so you need some, some free uh, uh, freedom in the university to be, and also in the press. So I think it's a point very well taken, David. Mm-hmm. And that's what I worry about with, you know, China's trying to censor and sort of augment reality, you know, just silence dissenting voices. And I feel like maybe it's just my upbringing. Maybe it's just sort of living in a country that has a Bill of Rights and a First Amendment. But, and I've seen firsthand, you know, when you open up the marketplace of ideas, because I grew up with, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the USA Today, and three networks and Fox. And then, of course, cable as well. But there was very few broadcasting outlets. Nowadays, everyone's a publisher. Everyone's a broadcaster. And you see, you know, the dumbest people will have 10 times more impact than you do, 100 times, 1,000 times more impact than you do. And it's like, why, does, why are people listening to this person? But that's just the way it is. And uh, I think there's negative consequences to that, but uh, letting everyone sort of compete in the marketplace of ideas is sort of the way that I was raised and sort of stifling off certain parts of the marketplace of ideas. And I don't mean, you know, no matter what crazy things you say, you should never be banned from Twitter or Facebook. Like, those are private companies. You know, you like people are saying, oh, what about the First Amendment? I got banned from Twitter. And it's like, well, Twitter doesn't have any obligation to publish you. Just like Simon and Schuster doesn't have to publish you, you know. Uh, but you're not going to get arrested for saying something here. Right. We you could can say, still say it. We could say whatever we want. And, you know, and you could start your own website. You could host your own web server and, you know, buy your own. Uh, so. There's a lot of ways you can get your message out where it's visible to everyone in the world without using a multinational company. Now, it's just because they're, they do it better. It's like, I should be allowed to use their resources. It's like, uh, no. I mean, that's not necessarily true, you know? Um, well, today, as you say, everyone can publish and everyone can say anything. Uh, in, and they can say truth and they can say lies. They can say whatever they want. And they are saying whatever they want. And so I think uh, the social media and everything, uh, this may be a subject of a different, another podcast, but I think it leads us to the point of the education of the populace. Because if you're not educated and you listen to these pundits that are feeling you align, you're being used. 
Mm-hmm. And I think without without an education, without knowledge, without really checking the facts, you're going to be used. And people are being used. And uh, and so uh, that that could be a subject of another the the the, the usury of the the listener to social media. Mm-hmm. They're being used. And we saw that in the past, ever since the 2016 election, mm-hmm. they can manipulate people. And and so you've got to be educated and you've got to be disciplined and you've got to learn. Yes. And, you, learn. Uh, you know, reading an article like this one by Yuan Yuan Ong, it's, uh, she, I think that she's a scholar on this particular field and her ideas are elucidating, but she's also not trying to... I think sort of elucidating the public on these ideas is the reason she wrote the article, not to gain followers or to keep you engaged. It's to sort of do this scholarship and then sort of put it into a more public, broader public, not in a journal, but in a broader public forum like Foreign Affairs, where people like you and I can sort of read it, digest it, and understand it and discuss it. She brings up some extremely good points. She says it very well. Uh, it's very articulate, but it's also uh, a very good sound arguments that she brings up, and it's well taken. It's mm-hmm. well taken. These are the kind of things that uh, that need to be out there for people to think about. So I think this is a good place to stop, don't you? I think so too. Okay. This has well, been a good. This has been good. It's been fun, David. Yes, and I apologize for that ten minutes that my mic was muted. I'm going to fix this in future episodes. So we invite you all to continue to tune in, subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, and we'll be back with more content Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Would you like to say anything in closing? Keep on talking, everybody, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye. Bye.